quite a while since I've done a solo podcast in this studio. I've had a lot of things that I've written over the past several months, and I've boiled down a lot of it to what you're about to hear. I will say that I'm going to be touching on some topics that I don't normally like to touch on because of how volatile they can be, although I do think these things should be talked about and thought about. Having said that, there isn't anything that I'm going to be talking about here that is meant to be offensive, rude, derogatory, or anything of the like. It is just me thinking out loud. Just a quick life update. The wife and I are finally about 99% done with the kitchen remodel that we started earlier this year. And well, beginning of the year, actually. And I still need to finish running the range hood vent through the roof. Obviously, I'm putting that off because of the heat. And we still need to finish painting in the laundry room. But at least the interior of the kitchen is complete and fully functional once again. I've had very little time invested into music or podcasting this year, and I'm hoping that changes once the summer is over. I think that's when work will hopefully slow down a little bit, and I will be done with most of the larger projects around the house. But if you own a house, you know it never ends. Here we go. First, let's talk about speech and cancellation. Imagine if you were outside talking to a friend just one-on-one -on -one about some fairly personal matters and then you started cracking jokes about some fairly serious things to lighten up the mood a little bit and you say something to this friend you've known for, I don't know, 15 plus years in a way that you surely wouldn't say in public because you're just being silly with your friend and trying to make them laugh. You know, your friend that knows you and won't likely misconstrue what you're saying. Now, what you didn't know was that there was a security camera close by and it actually captured your entire conversation. And this camera was being monitored by someone who may or may not have heard the entire conversation and may or may not have been offended by a part of this conversation. Maybe this person simply thought it was funny and wasn't offended in the slightest. Well, since they have access to this security footage, they take a 20 second cell phone video of the footage from the computer monitor and share it with their friend who might also think this to be funny. Remember, they didn't share the whole conversation that led up to this 20 second snippet. They also only shared it with a close friend. Now, this 20 second video is pretty much open to share amongst the rest of the planet via one person to another person and then to another person, then someone sharing it on social media in a small group, and then someone in that group posting it to a larger group, and so on and so forth. What you have now is a partial conversation between two people who others absolutely do not know and do not understand how or why they would be making fun of whatever they're making fun of or saying whatever they're saying. Let's say it eventually gets shared to a very large social media account with a plethora of followers and people who interact with it all day long because they apparently have nothing better to do. So now the comment section here is mostly people condemning you for your horrific thoughts and how you shouldn't be allowed certain places because you obviously hold certain views and certain ideologies that are exposed in this 20 second video. What's also disturbing is that 
you don't even have a clue all of this is happening yet. But eventually you start getting messages and friend requests on social media sites because someone out there outed you as the person in the video. Another potential layer here is that the video could have been from last week or it could have been from three years ago. But right now is when the internet mob knows about it and they're coming for you. You think, wow, what the actual fuck? This was just a joke. This was just banter between two friends that was taken way out of context. If any of these people actually knew me, they wouldn't be saying this stuff. But by this time, the damage has already been done and your name has been trashed. Let's say it was three years ago and you flat out don't even joke like that anymore and have been working at a very diverse and respectful company for, let's say, the past 11 months. You actually got promoted last month. Well, now that this video is making its rounds in a viral fashion and more and more people have seen it, some very offended people start calling your place of business to speak with management in hopes to get your employment terminated. Let's just say that actually works. And now you have to find a new job. You can't afford to pursue legal action against the company that let you go, and you don't have the resources to figure out who initially shared the original video. So you just carry on and apply to several places to try to get another job. Perhaps you hear back from none of them because so many people are currently familiar with this recently famous 20-second video and have preconceived notions of you. Your next plan of action is to make an explanation, an apology video, in hopes that it helps reduce the defamatory nature of all of this. And of course, that doesn't work. For one thing, it doesn't reach a fraction of the people the viral video did, and the majority of people who do see it well, they completely ignore your sentiment and proceed to comment the nastiest things on your apology video and big meme pages share it just to poke fun at it. Bloggers and journalists start to create articles about the entire situation, but of course, mostly highlight the negative viral video. Maybe they'll share a part of your apology, but it'll likely be a tiny clip that makes you appear weak or emotionally compromised in some way, so it keeps the negativity flowing. You are beside yourself. You can't get a job. Your friends have distanced themselves from you because they don't want any negative attention. Your family stays away from you for the same reason, and some of the more distant ones may even stand with the strangers that have been condemning you. Whether you think this is an extreme scenario or not, really imagine how awful you would feel if it were true and you were actually in this situation. Truly, try to feel that hopeless feeling. No job, no friends, no family. If you just so happen to be taking any sort of special medication, you know that one of the more common side effects for special medications seems to be suicidal thoughts. Now that you've tried on some of the feelings that may be felt in this hypothetical situation, try to keep that feeling in mind when you see a video or statement online that offends you or makes you want to heavily judge and condemn someone who you absolutely do not know. Don't contribute to this tribal piranha type behavior. Be more compassionate be understanding, be curious to know more, be mindful of why you feel the way you feel. Be mindful of how quickly you feel the need for judgment and try to figure out if it's an accurate or even a necessary assessment. Something that falls into this category is the Dave Chappelle special that came out a while back. It's like people completely miss the points he made and also widely miss the fact that he is a fucking comedian and that comedians make fun of things to introduce levity to difficult situations. If you don't find it funny, then all you need to do is turn it off and watch something else. If you don't like Cannibal Corpse's disgusting lyrics and harsh vocals, 
then I imagine you simply don't listen to them. You shouldn't have the want or feel the need to bash them and attempt to cancel them just because you like softer music about sunshine and rainbows. Move on and let other people enjoy what they want to enjoy just the same as you have the privilege of doing. I mean, was Dave Chappelle offering up false information as though it were absolute truth? I've never gotten that impression, and even if I did, I would still second-guess it because he's a comedian. If you do find yourself compelled to try to take away someone's livelihood via censoring their art or voice, I ask that you understand the possibility that you are potentially killing them. Sure, that might sound or seem extreme, but I just laid that out a little bit ago. There is a possibility that you are destroying someone's life, not just their livelihood, just because you don't like something or think someone else doesn't like it. It's so incredibly hard to believe that some of these people actually watched and listened to Dave's special with any interest other than to prepare a blanketed critique. I'm sure people thought it was going to be controversial, so they already had that in their heads and probably completely ignored the parts that actually made them chuckle. If you say you didn't chuckle at all, then I doubt you ever enjoyed his comedy before. So why would you care to waste your time watching it now, other than just watching to critique something that you already don't care for? It's like people talking shit about Joe Rogan and how bro science is about stuff, but I can almost guarantee if you sat down with him for three plus hours, he could smoke a joint, drink whiskey, and still probably make you look like an idiot in anything you weren't an expert in. And that's not me calling him a genius or anything, that's just illustrating the fact that he retains a ton of information and evolves his thinking in real time when dealing with so many different experts in so many different fields. Also, trying to fact-check or at least verify validity in real time with Jamie googling and looking up information for him every few minutes. The people that talk shit about Joe Rogan probably haven't listened to a full-length episode, much less a few episodes, to really get a sense of who and how he is. I could go further with all of this, but I think you get the point by now. Be more mindful of how you judge others and how you'd feel with others judging you in a similar way. Next up, police. I saw a comment on Facebook recently where someone was talking down about a famous person just because they were dating a cop. My goshness, I don't understand the absurdity in thinking less of someone for associating with a member of the organization that still responds to and helps out people in need regardless of whether they like cops or not. It's sad that you can't take your focus away from only the negative things and bad cops that do not represent what the police department is supposed to represent. If that statement hurts you, I imagine your response would be that it's sad for me to completely ignore those negative things, which is invalid. I'm not ignoring those things in the slightest. The only ignoring here is the person or persons ignoring any sort of positivity from the police department, which outweighs the other. Does the negative truly outweigh the positive? I find that very unlikely. If you've had nothing but negative encounters with police, I can totally understand your frustration and hatred, but I also feel sorry that you feel the need to condemn all of them when you haven't met all of them or read or heard all of the good things that have been done over the years. The lives saved, not just focusing on the lives lost or hurt. It's honestly pretty despicable. I have some friends that I know fall into the category of hatred towards police, and while I can understand it, I don't agree with it nor do I feel it's truly justified. I know I've already talked about this before, but it bears repeating because I think it's wildly unnecessary to walk around with hate in your heart for all people in that police uniform. It simply does not compute. 
If it's because you think they kill people, or specifically black people, I'd love to understand how much research you've done and how many people you've had conversations with that oppose you or show you conflicting evidence that doesn't support your claims that you heard on a news report or read in some blog posts. You can't just say, quote, cops are killing black people, end quote, like it's a general fact and leave it at that because it makes it sound like cops aren't killing any other race. And that's simply not the case. Cops are definitely killing black people. They're also definitely killing Asian people and Indian people and Hispanic people and white people. And hey, not all on purpose. I feel like there's just so much virtue signaling and bandwagoning going on that people just blindly follow whatever is being shouted the loudest. Police are doing a very difficult job and likely are not getting paid enough since every day could be their last. A lot of them could have a gun pulled on them at any moment of the day and some people out there would just shrug it off, maybe even say, good. I think that is psychotic and dangerously insensitive. Please do not be this way. Okay. Percentages. One thing I find interesting when I see or hear people arguing about specific things in society is the percentages that get thrown into the mix. 0.8% of people identify as blah, blah, blah. And another person says, 40% Americans believe such and such thing. Hey, did you know that only 65% of Americans brush their teeth? I mean, when you see percentages and stats like this, where they talk about Americans in general, do you ever stop to think, hmm, I don't remember answering a survey about such and such or divulging information about brushing my teeth? I mean, perhaps it's common knowledge that these kinds of things are collected from some sort of hundred or even thousand capacity group study, but... You can certainly test the accuracy of some of these things by reaching out to 20 or more people to see what their stance on something is. For example, if you see somewhere that 85% of Americans groom their pets once a month, you can reach out to people with pets and see if your results are close. What if you reach out to 30 people and only 7 of them groom their pets once a month? That's roughly 23%. That's nowhere close to 85%. But at the same time, you could reach out to 30 more people and find that 28 of those 30 do in fact groom their pets once a month. Hmm. I'm obviously not saying that your individual results are more accurate, nor am I trying to give any more reasons to not trust the higher sources of media and institutions that say these kinds of things. It's more of just a caution to not default to using these kinds of percentages to bark at people. Especially if you know nothing about the number of people polled for it, the entity or institution that did the polling, whether or not it was peer-reviewed, etc. In general, I'd just say not to fully believe every single bit of information you read or see coming from a place or entity that you feel should be credible, especially if it magically aligns with your thinking, because you will surely have a bias towards believing it as truth. If you don't challenge the things you want to be true, how do you truly know it to be true? Did you know that 67% of statistics are made up? And that was one of them. Even as I mentioned above about black people being killed by police, there are surely percentages on that versus Asian or Hispanic people or white people, but within those larger percentages are smaller percentages of other factors that mostly don't get talked about. Like where these people lived? Did they have jobs? Did they have parents? What kind of family life did they have? What type of training does the police department have in these areas? How stringent is the hiring process for law enforcement in these areas? 
There's nuance in just about everything. So why do we like to put everything in yes, no, black, white categories as if it is that simple? We humans are complex. Society is complex. Things are not simple. Which brings us to the next complex subject. This is a very difficult subject because of the ever-expanding acceptance and praise of gender fluidity and people choosing which part of the gender spectrum to latch onto according to how you feel at any given time. It's a bit confusing to me because I don't have those kinds of feelings or questions about myself and my identity, nor am I close with anyone who does. So that's basically my bias or ignorance in this area. I feel like I've heard a handful of people describe their gender identity as not to be based on anything sexual necessarily. It's just how the person feels. If that's the case, what is the actual point to claiming a certain gender? A while back when I talked with a transgender female on a podcast episode that I was unfortunately unable to release and come to find out she deleted me on Facebook, okay, she described gender identity as three different layers or levels. I haven't revisited that conversation to check this, but off the top of my head, I want to say that she described the three levels, something like one level being how you represent yourself, I guess how you look, and another is how you feel inside, and another layer would be your sexual attraction, your sexual identity. And those all three could be pointing in different directions. I could be wrong about one of those layers or levels, but I feel like that's pretty close to what she was getting at. And I found that very interesting. Another thing I find extremely curious in a sexual attraction sense is a biological male transitioning to female and they are in a relationship or are attracted to another biological male who has transitioned to female. In this scenario, I'm not sure if the reproductive organs remain intact or if they are fully transitioned. And it's certainly none of my business how two consenting adults interact sexually behind closed doors. But it still makes me curious about two transgender females that could still have their male parts and how they approach sex. My tiny brain kind of just sees it as two homosexual males that embrace feminine qualities. But I fully understand that there could be much more to it and many levels of feeling and understanding involved here. I've seen and heard devout Christians just labeling gender dysphoria as a mental illness, which I can somewhat understand because your mind is in conflict with your physical body. The term mental illness could come with negative connotations, but it doesn't necessarily mean something is bad or wrong. It's something involuntary, something trauma-induced, or there's possibly some sort of chemical imbalance. The same could be said about cases of pedophilia, perhaps, but of course that's very different because it involves children, in which you simply cannot have true consent. I was loosely involved in a conversation last year where a biological female that I've actually met before had recently started to identify as they-them, which I did not know until I was corrected by someone else when saying she. I was saying she. In all brutal honesty, it made me feel a bit agitated that I was corrected. I believe it's because the they-them person was not there to tell me that they prefer to be addressed as such. I would also be interested in exploring a conversation with this person to perhaps better understand what's going on with them and why they feel the need to be represented in such a way this late in life. And I mean that with respect, not ridicule or judgment. I don't see it as being scared or judgmental. 
of what I don't understand, I'm trying to actually understand and properly empathize. As I say all of this, I wonder if someone out there is thinking, it's none of your fucking business why they want to be called whatever they want to be called. If that's going through anyone's head, my immediate rebuttal is that it is my business when my speech and vocabulary is being corrected as though I'm incorrect. I don't like being incorrect about things and prefer to be corrected if necessary, but if I don't understand how I'm incorrect, I'm not easily going to conform to something just because someone who isn't even present might have their feelings hurt. What bothered me even more was trying to understand the conversation that came afterwards. The conversation was full of they and them, but the conversation involved more than a couple of people, so I found it extremely hard to follow. I don't know if they meant two people, or three people, or one person, or what. While learning to adapt to a growing population of people who want to be addressed a certain way can already be a difficult thing to program into your brain after how many ever years we've not had to do such a thing, it makes communication that much harder between people, I think. I understand that the difficulty in learning and adapting to new and different things isn't necessarily an excuse not to do so or to criticize, but it's hard not to in some of these situations because of the glaring difference between biological bodies that we all see with our eyes and process with our brains versus what someone says they feel inside. It's certainly no discredit to the internal struggles some people go through. You can't tell someone that they don't actually feel a certain way or that their feelings aren't justified or allowed. It's just hard to interpret people's feelings and internal struggles in general as it is, much less something that isn't very familiar and how some people want to be represented in specific ways that could somewhat contradict what the eyes are seeing. Another bit about they being confusing and seeing people recently defending the fact that they has been used as a pronoun in our language for many, many years is that there's a matter of context. To my knowledge, they has never been used in the way that it is being encouraged to be used these days. For example, if you were to say, my mom and my aunt went out for dinner and they got dessert, one would assume they would be referring to the two adult females. But in today's usage, they could be referring to your non-binary sibling. And then to continue that conversation further, you could say they had dessert, but they didn't. The first they, meaning the non-binary sibling, while the next they, meaning the two adult females. To criticize this treatment of our language doesn't mean that someone is automatically phobic or intentionally wanting to cause harm or disrespect someone. There just has to be a better way to communicate in a coherent way without being disrespectful. I don't have an answer for that, and even if I claimed to, I'm sure it would be met with opposition, mostly by assumption and mislabeling due to misunderstanding one's ability to have difficult conversations. Nowhere in this subject do I feel like I'm 100% right or that others are 100% wrong or anything like that. If you sense serious judgment or negativity here from me, you are taking this the complete opposite way of how I'm intending for it to be taken. If that doesn't make sense to you, well, perhaps it's because you don't know me or you don't understand me and my curiosity. This just seems to be a potential volatile subject to many people, and I just have to point out what's obvious to me. If something is serious enough to alter our vocabulary and alter the way we see each other and interact with one another, then it should surely be open for detailed discussion. 
that's like the company you work for changing a policy on you that you don't understand. And it affects you in a way that you have to relearn and adapt to immediately. Would you not want to have a conversation or at least receive some sort of crash course in how and why this needs to be implemented? Or would it be best for the company to just fire you for asking questions or second guessing something? You know, similar to being canceled. I've yet to have a legit crash course on this stuff, and I have a strong feeling that lack of knowledge applies to a gigantic chunk of the population who do not identify as anything other than heterosexual and live their lives mostly in that realm of existence. I had a random thought one morning on the way to work. I thought about what it would be like to ask a 20-year-old adult who is transitioning or seeking transition, how long have you felt confused about your physical identity syncing up with your mental identity. I'm not using the word confused in a negative or judgmental way. I think it bears importance to understand how long someone has felt uncomfortable in their skin and to apply that knowledge while also considering their environment and upbringing. The natural infatuation with the opposite sex and mimicking their attire, mannerisms, etc. is most likely the physical manifestation of curiosity and an underlying want to understand the opposite sex or another person in general. It could be a genuine interest or even preference for the style or look or sound of the opposite sex. When investigating some people's upbringing or developmental environment, we might find a single mother household, a single father household, a two mother household, a two father household, etc. Within each and every one of these households, there could be myriad possibilities that could very much shift the mental and physical identities of children who grow up in them. One household could have a ton of close family gatherings, and this family may spend countless hours talking about politics, or sex, or violence, or climate change, or inequality, or racism, or peace, or whatever. All of these things have major effects on the children who are exposed to such subjects. In this particular household of many family gatherings, there may be a pedophilic uncle or aunt who mentally or physically abuses. Physical abuse isn't on the same level as verbal abuse in this specific scenario, but the mind is extremely powerful, and if the mind has been shaped in a certain way by abuse in someone's early life, it could really manifest a whole slew of issues down the road. There are way too many different scenarios that I can think of where a younger person could be very susceptible to change from the quote-unquote norm and imprinted with something that they are not yet qualified to parse. And when I say norm, normal, I can see that being flipped around or questioned as to what is actually considered normal and who actually has the authority to make that distinction. I am using normal in a sense of the majority of people over the past many centuries who carry the innate interest and curiosity in the opposite sex, yet remain heterosexual and retain their biological sex and appearance. Let's consider a couple of easy scenarios. A single father household with two daughters. One daughter is older and was attached to her mother for a few years before she left or passed on perhaps. The younger daughter wasn't around her mother at all, and clung to her father for comfort and guidance. The older daughter remained feminine and carried many feminine qualities of her mother. The younger daughter stayed more attached to her father and became more tomboyish. Now, this tomboyish daughter, you don't hear tomboy much these days, could easily be attracted to men who remind her of her father, or she might find herself feeling more masculine and feeling more attracted to females for whatever reason. But 
to say that she feels masculine enough to want to actually transition into a male could seem a little bit extreme in this scenario, unless perhaps there were other external factors in her mental development, or maybe she always felt an urge to be a boy. This specific scenario could be observed as the complete opposite as well, and there could be a single mother raising two boys. The older boy could be very masculine, and the younger boy could be much more feminine. Perhaps the mother worked from home and had other female friends and business associates over quite frequently, which the younger boy would be around more because he's too young to be in school while the older one is in school, and the heavy feminine exposure could launch this younger boy into many different directions that wouldn't necessarily be as likely in a mother-father household. Although, when we factor in the current atmosphere with social media and the information overload at almost any time of any day, it could really exacerbate matters or hinder natural growth, mentally and physically, without obvious indication. Those two scenarios are probably very mild in comparison to a two-mother household or two-father household. I don't even know what a trans adult household would lead to or could lead to, and I'm not assuming anything negative either. I just hesitate to consider it a harmless normal. Harm could come from any household, without a doubt, but children are indeed little sponge monkeys who absorb and imitate their surroundings. I get the feeling that children who are exposed to more trans or homosexual households and people will consider it more normal than it actually is, or more prevalent, I guess. But I could also see it being a matter of pride and perhaps even wanting to be trans or homosexual to fit in or to be more accepted or liked or whatever convincing urge that arises from those kinds of environments. Similar to a family of scientists or mathematicians, let's say your parents are both biologists and your aunts and uncles are doctors and scientists that you look up to. You don't necessarily look up to them because of their jobs. You look up to them as people and how they treat you. You inherently have an interest in them, so their interests may become your interests, and you might be more likely to follow closer in their footsteps. All of this could, of course, be combated by school and friends outside of the household. I certainly can't and don't blame social media for everything, but how much of social media drivel is filtered down from parents to their children and from their children to your children? My style changed throughout my school life because of the people I surrounded myself with. When I was hanging around more grunge kids, I dressed more grunge. When I hung around more rap preppy kids, I dressed a little differently and embraced a different genre of music. When I got more into rock and metal, I had more rock and metal friends and dressed more goth and donned that garb for a while. I have changed styles a handful of times and can most likely attribute those changes to the people I surrounded myself with and the kinds of music and media I absorbed. Once out and around more everyday people who had more of an evolved style, I evolved as well. I've shed many skins and will likely shed many more, but I admit that I have evolved and adapted to my surroundings. I could surely give out many more detailed scenarios that I think could easily explain someone's mental confusion about their physical body, but it's pure speculation on my end. I also don't have children, so I'm speaking from my own experience as a former child and being around other children in my life. It's just very hard for me to think that an 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 or even 16-year-old is confident enough to know exactly what they want to do with their body and appearance for the rest of their life at that point. I'm more so speaking about getting hormone treatment and surgeries for transitioning. 
Another recent thing I saw on this subject was on social media, someone posted a remark on the sports and competition subject of biological men competing as transitioned women. One comment I saw and frequently see in these conversations about gender was, why even comment on this? It doesn't affect you or me in the slightest. That statement could be true in regards to being directly affected by this direct specific matter, but I do see an effect that trickles down into our social fabric. The wide acceptance of things like this by the very loud and annoyed people who belt out their opinions and demands for such is what affects those who are claimed to not be affected. The specific recognition and specific rights and specific expectations and specific changes that these people think should be made are what do affect everyone. Recognizing people as they, them interjects into our current vocabulary and really muddles up communication in text form and by word of mouth, as I already mentioned. One could argue that's just the evolution of language, but that doesn't mean that it's good or <laughs> beneficial evolution. If you want to tell everyone that you identify as a frog and want to be addressed as a frog, I can accommodate that, but you will not convince me that you are actually physically a frog. If you are a male who wants to transition to a female, you should be able to do so, though you should not assume you are indeed a female human as much as a female-born human, especially not if you retain your external male organ. If there are massive amounts of genders and identities, why are trans women wanting to be labeled as just women? That's a binary identity, whereas the bulk of chatter about recognition in this space seems to bolster identifying as non-binary or whatever you see fit. If we are to be more accepting and understanding with trans and trans identities, I don't see the need in trying to conform to the binary identities that we've carried forever. To me, there seem to be five obvious identities that we can all fit into at this point. Female, male, trans female, trans male, non-binary. I think non-binary would technically and legitimately apply to a very minuscule amount of people in this world, but I would happily recognize it as one of these five identities. My comments on this subject of gender here are coming from where my mind currently sits on this matter at this point of time as I'm recording. Nowhere do I claim to be fully informed, factually correct, married to the ideas and opinions I have expressed here. I am fully agnostic of almost anything because I tend to gravitate towards science and hard evidence, both of which can change over time if presented with better or more accurate information. So once again, if you've taken offense to anything I've said here, I encourage you to investigate why you feel that way. I'm not saying it's all on you or all your fault that you're offended. I'm asking that you check yourself to make sure your own biases or presumptions aren't contributing to your being offended by something that was certainly not meant to be offensive in the slightest. For example, perhaps you were a little agitated by one specific comment I made that you feel could have been worded nicer, and this caused you to hear everything else I said through a dirty filter filled with agitation from that one comment. That means you're not hearing everything with an open mind. You're listening through a dirty filter. This actually applies to all subjects in life, but clean your filters. Make sure they are clean. Make sure your vision or hearing is not obstructed. All right, moving on. Growing up. When I was on the way home from work one day, I noticed a kid with a skateboard and his clothes looked really new. 
and I thought that he was giving off a vibe where he was just trying to look like a skater kid. Then I started thinking about what it was like when I was in high school or junior high and people were called posers. I think this kid that I saw might have been a poser. And I was thinking about how goofy the whole poser label was and is, but it's just kids addressing something that we experience with people most of our lives, I think. We imitate others and try to emulate other people's personas, whether knowingly or not, and that could be perceived as posing in a way. You don't have to be posing as something else or someone else for nefarious reasons. I believe it could be a very subconscious action just the same. But I guess it could be similar to someone dressing and talking like they have a lot of money or have a higher social status than they actually do. What is happening with my voice? You're posing as something that you are not, but it doesn't mean it should always be perceived as something negative because it simply might not be. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, dress for success. It could very well be a case of just that. Looking the part so you can get the part. I mean, you basically have to pretend to be asleep when you're trying to go to sleep, right? (laughs) Another interesting occurrence in growing up is something that came across my brainwaves recently. I observed myself saying, boy howdy, shoo-wee, one day while doing something outside in the heat. In a particular way that was mostly me mimicking or making fun of older folks I've been around in my life, and they would say phrases like that, which would always make me laugh. And as I observed myself doing that, I had a genuine wonderment about those older folks that I was imitating and thought, what if those older folks were just imitating something they heard from older folks in their younger years? And what if those older folks were imitating even older folks from further back? How far back does it go? How far back is the original person to say, boy, howdy, shoo, wee? That might seem dumb or laughable, but I think it's genuinely interesting. Another thread to pull here in the subject of growing up would be to comment on the phrase, people don't change overnight. While this is mostly true, There are certainly instances where people do change overnight. For example, the 375-pound man who decides one day, I am sick of feeling this way and looking this way. I'm starting a diet and exercise routine tomorrow, and I'm going to be 200 pounds. There are people out there that do this and stick with it and literally change their mindset and their outlook overnight. While the road to this success is long and hard, and the results don't come quickly, the mindset has literally changed overnight. Mindset is what requires change when there is a certain behavior or trait that you don't like, and you can plead over and over again that you want to change and you are going to change while also throwing out there that you can't just change overnight, but you most likely can, unless there's a legitimate chemical imbalance or something neurological that's playing a larger role. Substance abuse could throw a wrench in that as well. But beyond that, you are mainly just battling your own mind and inner voice. You know, the one you tend to ignore and push aside when you're constantly trying to focus on something just to keep yourself occupied. This is where meditation and mindfulness can really come in handy. This also ties in with evolution. I have some friends that have had some really awesome opportunities fall into their laps, whether it be from genuine hard work or just happenstance. And it's interesting to see how some of them handle the additional pressure in situations and how they can maintain their composure while being exposed to a whole new world of higher opportunities. 
I'm happy to say that most of the people I know and associate with handle additional fame and fortune pretty well. At least from my perspective, I can say so. I've heard the opposite from other friends, and it makes me wonder who is possibly taking something wrong or who isn't speaking up or being honest or genuinely overwhelmed and desperately trying to stay afloat, who is being less understanding, who is truly looking for meaningful connections and a meaningful existence. I have a friend who has been getting a lot bigger in the music scene and touring with larger bands. I've known him to be easily overwhelmed and very emotionally compromised at times, but he appears to be doing very well from what I see on social media and from my interactions with him. The person he is right now is someone that he's never been before. You know, this is the 2022 model. While he may look like the 2016 model, his internal software has been upgraded and changed. And to be completely fair, those upgrades and changes aren't always guaranteed to be better or more efficient or worth keeping. Sometimes software updates just aren't great, and while they could potentially be harmful or difficult to operate, they aren't permanent the way they are, and they could evolve and change to be better. The version of you right now is the version of you right now. You can upgrade your software, you can change your mind, you can adapt and overcome. That's another important thing to keep in mind when judging others or assuming others are intentionally insincere or harmful or neglectful or whatever troubling issue you may have with them. Their software might just need to be updated. They might have a virus. They just might truly be struggling. You don't know. Ugh, this one. I made a mistake in the past. Well, I mentioned disliking the dislike button on YouTube a few times, and didn't like having one there for the most part because most of the time it was used for nefarious reasons, and it just didn't seem like it was helpful to anyone. However, since YouTube disabled the counter for dislikes back in November 2021, I found it and still find it very frustrating because I used to determine whether instructional videos, I didn't realize it at the time, but I used to determine whether instructional videos were worth my time or not by observing the like to dislike ratio. For example, I look up videos to troubleshoot software issues, or tool reviews, cooking, building things. While I could read through some comments here and there, it's much easier to determine whether or not I should invest 13 minutes into a video when I can see if it has 12 likes and 348 dislikes. Now I just skim the video and comment section. It isn't very efficient, but I'm still adapting. I'm just not exactly sure of the benefit by having a dislike button and not even seeing the counter. Perhaps it's solely used for YouTube to tune up their algorithms to not recommend videos you dislike. I can understand that, of course, but I still think it's kind of unnecessary. The problem I've had with it before is it being used for art or just used by people trolling an account. For instance, posting a new album stream it might not be everyone's favorite style of music, but it might be loved by many others. So those who don't like it can technically dislike it, but what good does that actually do other than you're feeding the algorithm? It makes much more sense when incorporating it with something like a tutorial on how to make bread. If the first ingredient is flat Pepsi and the next one is peanuts, that probably deserves a dislike because it's obviously incorrect and could even be harmful. You know, if you have an allergy to peanuts. 
But disliking a video of a time lapse of someone painting a forest landscape is stupid. If you don't like it, just go ahead and close the window or watch a different video. If you're watching a video or a song you hate, there's no need to smash that dislike button. You could just smash that freaking X in the top of the window and go watch something else, you dingus. Speaking of videos and stuff like that, how freaking crazy is it that we can walk around with a device in our pockets that can send and receive live video feeds that can just be broadcasted to potentially thousands or even millions of people at any given moment? I mean, seriously, how does that work? How does the device activate the camera? How does the camera capture and retain the information it is observing? How does that information get picked up into invisible radio waves that are picked up by some sort of antenna and then broadcast to another device that is able to observe what is happening somewhere across the entire planet almost instantaneously? It's super strange. Also, where is the internet? <laughs> Seriously, where is it located? Is it on a server somewhere? How is the internet the internet? What spider made this world wide web? What happens when the birthplace and power source of the internet is depleted or shut down? Does the internet still exist? Can it be turned off? How did it get turned on? Don't even get me started on AI. Perhaps this could all be answered by Google, but Google is the internet. All right. I know I've mentioned it before, but I listen to a Christian podcast almost every weekday when it's in season. I guess the, this dude has seasons. And I can't pinpoint exactly why I listen to it, but it's typically about current events and how those current events appear to the host, Albert Moeller, through a Christian worldview. I feel quite detached from some of his interpretations and mindset and even find myself vehemently disagreeing with his reasoning and judgment at times, but I do agree with some aspects and subject matter, so it's not a case where I just listen to get myself all raged up or something. On a past episode, there was a remark about a Jewish writer's child that confessed to his father that he did not believe in God, and when his father asked him why, the child commented on all the people dying recently, which could be referring to COVID or the war in Ukraine, but Moeller basically said that it's all part of God's plan. Okay, if we are to pray to God or a God and beg this being to take care of our loved ones or to make our loved ones better while they're in the hospital or laid up in bed or whatever the case, if all of the quote-unquote bad things are quote-unquote permitted evil, which is what Albert Moeller said, then what are people actually praying for? If it's part of God's plan, that means it's already written and there isn't any changing it because God is infallible and omniscient. To that effect, if he is all-knowing and knows all of our thoughts and intentions, that begs the question, is God in control of thoughts? Does God have any influence on the random thoughts that flow into our heads? Is it like one of those interactive TV shows where you're able to select certain outcomes that give you a custom experience? It could all be very confusing to a child, for sure, but also confusing to a logical, truth-seeking adult. One thing I've noticed in Albert Muller's show is when some of these questions of doubt or misunderstanding are raised, there are some nice and comforting explanations from him, but a lot of them don't seem to have much reliable substance other than having faith and believing. That's not good enough for the people who truly want to know and believe, but aren't really willing to just go off of someone's word on something rather than doing the research and hard work to find the truth themselves. 
All that could, of course, be swatted away by a theologian throwing out whatever verse that is about man not leaning on his own understanding, but at the end of the day, that's just something written in a book. It's like having a definition of a word and the definition containing the word that is defining. It's a snake eating its own tail. In another episode, Albert Muller was talking about World War II and the clear loser being established, and after saying that, he said, thanks be to God. It's remarks like those that put me in a curious mindset of wondering what he, what the thought process would be if the winner and loser were to be swapped in this specific event. I bet there wouldn't be a thanks to God coming from him, but it would still be a part of God's plan, I suppose. Would there be a thanks to God for making you a loser? Would it then be justified to be angry with God because you lost? It doesn't seem to make sense to give thanks as though it's a favor unto you when it's just all part of the plan. Perhaps that's a weak argument or looking at it the wrong way, but it still makes me wonder why that thanks be to God remark would even be made in the first place. You obviously wouldn't be able to help yourself in some sort of serious situation like a storm or a freak event where your life was spared and others were lost. You might think to yourself, thank you, God, for sparing my life. But that's not what happened. It's simply a part of his plan. And you just lucked out to be on the winning side of it, right? Or do you truly feel like your prayer that you threw out right before the tornado hit your neighborhood is what made the tornado miss your house? If the answer is yes, then you basically think you can change God's plan, right? I don't really know that I see it any other way when it's laid out like that. Woo! Speaking of religion and going ahead and addressing hot topics, one of the more recent ones this summer is abortion. For the sake of simplicity and ease of understanding who and what I'm talking about throughout this, I will be using the terms pro-life, pro-lifers, pro-choice, and pro-choicers. This is how we typically hear about the two sides in most news and information sources as it is, so I'll just go with that. Well, where to start? I don't know enough about women's bodies or the cycles and trimesters of pregnancy or even the abortion process to have a strong opinion other than the fact that not all situations or people are the same and not every situation neatly falls into one of two categories. Similar to Republican and Democratic parties, there are other parties and positions as well, but people tend to focus and settle on left and right as though they are the only two options when the inner workings and policies of the two can have plenty of nuance and differences to where it would seem logical to have more than two options. But maybe that's a dumb comparison, but sure you get my point. As mentioned, the two options are typically displayed as pro-life and pro-choice, but it seems more like people think pro-life is only about control and power, while pro-choice is simply pro-death. I think both are mostly wrong. Pro-life being about control and power doesn't quite make sense to be used across the board, though I can certainly imagine many people are using it for control and power to help keep our population from halting and dwindling down. For more reasons, I'm sure, but that's a very real issue as far as our population not keeping steady since more and more people are not having babies these days. Pro-choice folk seem to be pinned as people hell-bent on killing and not caring about a potential life, even though it seems highly likely that most don't intentionally get pregnant and don't enjoy ending a potential life just because they don't care. There are way too many scenarios that can be laid out to argue against the inability to abort a fetus. How about this one? 
We have a widowed mother who has two children and can barely make it by. She works two jobs to give her children the best lives she can, and she's been on her own for a few years now while never really pursuing her own happiness. Her friends and family tell her to go out and have fun sometimes, just be happy, but she doesn't do it. She has too many other things to take care of. Well, one day, she decides, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out and enjoy myself. So she does that. She goes out, has a great time. First time she's done this in years. And she finds herself rather enchanted and enchanted enough to physically bond with someone, no strings attached, and just so happens to get pregnant. I can hear it now. Well, maybe she just should have kept her legs closed. So you think this is a situation or any situation allows for killing an unborn child? And my rebuttal would be, so you think this woman's one night of happiness is grounds for dismissing the last few struggle-filled years and then adding another mouth to feed for the oncoming 18-plus years when she can barely manage the two she already has while working nonstop? I mean, every scenario could be coupled with an infinite amount of rebuttals and categories to box someone or something into, yet we're still stuck on pro-life and pro-choice. There is more to it than just that. The woman in this scenario is thinking of her sanity and her ability to keep giving her two already born children the life they deserve, likely without the amount of help she truly needs. There's also much nuance and chance with the baby itself. What if the baby turns out to be a fucking menace because she has no idea what this one night stand dude was like every day or what kind of genes he has? What if the baby has special needs? That's a hundred times more difficult than raising a child in good health yet she will be forced to birth and take care of this child. What if doing that ends up requiring her to quit her job to take care of the special needs child and the other two children start acting up and being bad because they don't get the attention they used to before the special needs child showed up? What if this child is able to grow up and cure cancer? What if this child is born with cancer? How lovely. What if the child grows up to save other children in a school from a mass shooting? What if a child grows up to do a mass shooting? There are so many what-ifs that can favor both sides, but there's not even a reason to discuss them if the dinguses in charge don't think having a choice or say-so in the matter is possible. In the case where the baby would be special needs or too much for the mother to handle, she could just put the baby up for adoption, right? Sure, what about the doctor's visits during pregnancy? What if she loses her job or jobs? because it's a difficult pregnancy and she has to take too much time off of work. What about the physical and mental repercussions from a third pregnancy? How does it affect the other two children? What about the mental repercussions of giving a child up for adoption? There simply doesn't seem to be much care about the mother of the fetus, just the fetus. Life in general is a crapshoot that is hard to label or predict once out of the womb, so predicting what will come of these joining cells inside the womb is even more of a crapshoot. We also have to consider and think about all of the starving children and adults and elderly that are struggling to survive right now on this planet. I think religious folk are a bit blinded by faith with a limited understanding due to said faith. I've heard and seen religious people argue that there isn't anywhere in the Bible that says women have or should have bodily autonomy, nor does the Constitution say so. But we do have freedom and freedom of religion, and once you start talking about the Bible and using it in your argument, I see the argument as invalid or flawed at the very least. 
everyone has their own scenarios and situations they've been in or have known someone to be in similar situations, and perhaps that's how you gathered your opinion about this. Maybe you and an ex-girlfriend had an abortion years ago and you regret it. And since you hold on to that regret, you can't bring yourself to be pro-choice. And even though you feel justified in your position and the reasoning behind your position, what makes you the decider of someone else not being able to decide something for themselves? I can also understand someone being a little biased towards pro-life if they themselves cannot physically produce a child because of a medical condition or some other unfortunate force at play. While I can certainly sympathize, it still doesn't justify canceling out anyone else's ability to have a choice while in a completely different situation. Some people pay a lot of money to try to have an insemination or multiple inseminations due to failed attempts. And while I can't judge people too hard about wanting to create something together, there's still a part of me that can't ignore the gigantic amounts of money that go out for these kinds of procedures and how that money could be applied towards adopting a child and giving them a better life than what they currently have. Especially if all the inseminations fail and you aren't able to come away with a successful pregnancy. All that money is gone. I know that sounds judgmental, and in a way it is judgmental, but it's merely another perspective on the matter. I'm not meaning it to be negative or purely critical. Another descriptor used by pro-lifers is the process of abortion and how it takes place. I've heard and seen people say something about ripping the limbs off of an unborn child and graphic things like that to really help the shock factor. From what I understand, depending on the individual and the amount of weeks into the pregnancy, a medical-induced abortion is an option. It is administered to the woman, and the aborted fetus comes out in what I'm assuming is a similar fashion to having a miscarriage. Upon looking up some info about miscarriages, I saw that the medical term for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. Hmm. So you mean to tell me that your body can essentially just choose to have an abortion without the approval of the government? How dare you, murderer? Anyway, the shock factor descriptor of how the embryo or fetus, depending on how far along the pregnancy is, may be extremely accurate or wildly exaggerated or based on one out of a thousand cases or whatever. I, I don't know. And I can't confidently say what is true or in either direction. I just have to remain agnostic until I've found irrefutable evidence. Speaking of the distinction of an embryo versus fetus, how does an unborn life matter more than an already born life? I'm surprised I haven't seen any unborn lives matter stickers floating around. I'm sure they're out there. But seriously, there are so many children, not to mention adults of all ages, that are suffering almost every day and in need of help. But we're focusing on potential lives as though they are far more important than the people that can actually stare us right in the face with their hands out and tears streaming from their eyes. In one of the many Facebook posts I've scrolled through on this matter, I saw a female being extremely condescending while expressing her pro-life opinion, basically blaming women for not keeping their legs closed. Then, when people would reply with logical counterpoints, calmly, I might add, and she would claim that their responses were tired, and she didn't even read the replies. Okay, well, how can you say it's tired if you didn't even read it? Mm. If you have the audacity to leave shitty comments as though they are fact, then completely ignore or dismiss rebuttals with an emaciated LOL, you've lost. This specific post was a screenshot of someone sharing a comparison to donating blood and organs, how these things require permission from the owner of the body that holds the blood and organs. 
So even a dead body cannot be legally harvested for organs without legal permission. That's the point that was being made in that post, that a dead body has more bodily autonomy than a live pregnant woman. All right. Final section here, which I think this kind of ties into a lot of stuff that I've said already. And I've certainly talked about it before, but let's close this with something a little more positive. Mindfulness and perspective. I know I've talked about it too many times, but you know, maybe you haven't heard all the other times I've talked about it. So let's go. Being mindful is one of the most efficient ways to better one's self and one's interactions with others. For example, in the past, I've treated some people in my life differently than others, which I'm sure we're all guilty of to some extent. What I'm referring to specifically, though, is treating some people as though they are almost untouchable or far superior than myself just based on how well known they are or being in a higher position than myself versus treating some other people less than. More specifically, treating the lesser almost the exact same way I think I would be treated by the higher untouchables I just mentioned, if that makes sense. Quite the cycle and lack of awareness. However, through mindfulness and awareness to my reactions and interactions, I'm able to recognize that sort of dysfunction, and I try to make sure I don't see another fellow human as untouchable, but I can certainly show respect to them in the same way most of us were taught to respect our elders, even if someone is actually much younger. I also have to keep my ego in check and to make sure I'm not thinking of any one other human as generally less than myself. If we truly believe that we are born with some sort of right as a human individual, it's something you must live your daily life by and to just be more mindful and more empathetic. When you allow yourself to be more empathetic, you allow yourself the ability to understand another person and another perspective, another worldview. I made a video a couple of years back, I believe, about utilizing different perspectives from different people in order to have an overall better perspective or understanding about something. I think I said something like having 20 people standing around in a giant circle to observe something in the center of the circle, like a soccer ball at chest height, perhaps. Like it's floating in front of you at chest height. In this scenario, you have 20 different perspectives of this soccer ball. From each of these 20 perspectives, you can only see a part of the soccer ball and you can only assume the other side looks similar to what you can see. You could ask your neighbors what they see and factor that into your interpretation of what this soccer ball looks like or what it represents. There's certainly a chance that your neighbor could be deceptive or manipulative and feeding you incorrect information, which is basically how our lives are every day. But even if that's the case, you won't know much about your neighbors if you don't have much empathy or curiosity about understanding their perspective. The soccer ball in this scenario is basically the world or society or culture or a specific problem. There are different angles that you might not see or might not understand, but if you remain mindful and open to discuss things with your neighbors, your viewpoint will surely expand. An expansive viewpoint leads to an expansive understanding. An expansive understanding leads to others having a better understanding because most people don't just hoard knowledge, they want to share it with others and to help educate those around them. At least that's where my head is, and that's what I notice with others who feel like they have found valuable information that helps them in life. 
Helping others is one of the best feelings you can have, and it can be so incredibly contagious. Be kind to others and be kind to yourself. I'm guilty of not doing that. I call myself a freaking idiot all the time. Shouldn't do that, you know, because one day yourself may be all you have. So exercise your mind, your spirit, and your physical vessel. We don't truly know what lies ahead for us, but together, I think we can get through just about anything. I really appreciate you guys for taking the time to listen, and I hope no one takes anything negatively or misinterprets my intent with some of these more difficult subjects. These are things I don't normally talk about with most people, but perhaps this will birth some really good future conversations. Thanks again, and take care. Bye. Rusty's Escape Pod. Rusty's Escape Pod.